Welcome to Forest City Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here. We hope that you find today's message encouraging on your journey of figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus in the 21st century. Good morning, everyone. So I'm reading from Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. If you're reading from the church Bibles, it's on page 753. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship found for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. The 2015 Canadian election, the federal Canadian election, saw this new leader of the Liberal Party with a familiar last name take this party with a dismal third party place. With only 36 seats and in one election moved from 36 seats to 184 seats. Justin Trudeau turned a failing party into a majority government. It was the greatest numerical increase by a federal party in Canadians' history, and in coming to power, Justin became the second youngest prime minister in our history. Just a point of clarification, I am in no way making any political statement this morning. I know it's always dangerous talking about prime ministers and parties, but rather, I'm not making a statement of approval, nor am I making any statements of condemnation. Rather, my intention today is to demonstrate a cultural norm based on how Justin was able to move a party from irrelevancy to a strong majority in just simply one election. Okay, we're good? I can move on? Great. You might have remembered this election, especially if you're 25, 30, or over. This was an election where Justin seemed to campaign with a different kind of flavor than most campaigns. He called it a positive campaign. He spent little time criticizing the almost 10-year prime minister at the time, Stephen Harper, but rather he focused on his progressive ideals, and he talked about a new reality in which we all could live in. And if you remember this time, and he won in this, this moment, which actually I think was even more stunning for the liberals than everyone else, but when he stepped up to accept this new mandate, he started his speech by saying, sunny ways, sunny ways. And this whole idea and this whole campaign was ideas that what is next is better. Now, regardless of what you think about Trudeau in 2015 or even today, his message of new is better, that progress is what we need, it resonated. It resonated with a strong majority of Canadians at the time. Now, I'm using Trudeau as an example, but most politicians, especially those who are in the opposition, they speak to such change such new ideas, that we need to do away with the old, it's time for something new. Progress is the motto in which they're hoping will capture your vote. See, politicians are tapping into a consensus around the belief in progress. The salvation of the day is progress. It's progress they say, that propels us forward, offering us the promise of a brighter future and enhanced quality of life. That's why most societies and organizations and businesses spend a lot of time talking about progress. It seems to lie at the very heart of the advancement of our economics and innovation. We're all about progress. 
Now, of course, that being said, there are some unintended consequences with progress. And not all progress is positive. Uh, History would tell us that. And even modern day concerns around some of the progress with AI or technology is concerning. Now, of course, so much of progress has been positive. Especially if you're a female or a person of minority today, you would see the last 50 years and the advances we made as a really good and positive thing, and I would agree and concur. Nevertheless, progress is what matters the most. It's time to look forward. Do away from the old, the old thinking, the old technology. We need new ways, new ideas. We need to progress to new realities. I say all of that with the context, which especially, this this context is especially true here in Vancouver, it makes this setting, a Sunday gathering, a little bit unusual. Because here in this gathering, we gather around something that's ancient. In fact, we gather around something that's older than all of us put together. The assumption of many in our city, in Vancouver, is that because we turn to these ancient words of Scripture, because we open this ancient book, we are therefore not evolved. We have some simple or narrow thinking that we just haven't progressed yet. We haven't moved on from this ancient way of thinking. What benefit could this ancient, what benefit could those who are ancient teach us today? What do individuals who didn't even know about how the solar system worked or why it rained or even the presence of germs, they didn't know about any of that, what could they possibly teach us? Having said that, anyone who has read the writings of the ancients have learned that there is incredible wisdom in what they say. In my profession, I meet people all the time who pick up a Bible for one reason or another, and they have no context of Mesopotamia or the ancient world. They have no context of the language or rabbis or Jew, Jewish culture, none of that, but yet they read these words, and they say these words, they seem to pierce to the very core of who they are, that these words are like nothing else they've ever read, that these words, they use words to describe them as like they're living. So as much as we have progressed and much of it has been positive, humanity still seems to have some fundamental pieces about who we are that have not changed through the centuries. To say all that, today we are going to look at an ancient story. An ancient story, one that was written around 800 B.C., an ancient, about an ancient Israel prophet known as Jonah. And this story, I believe, as much as it's ancient and written hundreds of years ago, has many modern-day implications for you and I today living in 2024 in Metro Vancouver. So we, as a community, as a church, are spending the next five weeks unpacking this short book uh, in the Hebrew Bible uh, known as the Old Testament that you have in the first two-thirds of your Bible. And for many of us, the book of Jonah, whether we uh, grew up in church or not, we kind of have a sense of them. We're like, isn't that the one where the guy got swallowed by the whale? It actually never says whale, it says great fish, but like, we kind of have the sense of that. But this book, this little book, these four chapters, it's a literary masterpiece. This book is full, full of all of these different realities. It's full of irony and plot twists and foreshadowing. It has complex characters which you can't simply peg. 
All of this makes it one of my favorite books of the Hebrew Bible. So today, we're starting that series, and we're looking just only at the first three verses in which Cheryl just read for us just moments ago. And we're hoping these first three verses will serve as an introduction, a foundation for us to go. So we're looking through uh, at these first three verses through three different parts, prophet, the assignment, and the response, and then one implication based on that. So let's start, let's begin, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1, the prophet. The word of the Lord came to Jonah of Amittai. Now this is a common phrase. If you're familiar with Hebrew scripture, you would know this phrase. You would see it a lot. The word of the Lord came. This was a common introduction to how these prophetic books would start when they would outline a prophet. It always started with God coming and giving a specific word. See, Israel had lots of priests at this time, and priests were in charge of managing the temple and looking after the sacrificial system. There were lots of priests, but there were few prophets. Usually Israel only had one prophet at a time because that's all they could handle. See, prophets, they weren't like priests. They just didn't manage the status quo. Prophets were reformers. Prophets had an ability to see a reality that everyone else seemed to miss, and they would speak to the social conscience of the society and speak to the reality where things were missed. So the Hebrew Bible is full of these prophetic books. They're divided in a couple categories, major and minor. The majors aren't more important, they're just longer. So they got the title major, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But then there's all these minor prophetic books that's shorter. Often they're called the 12 because there's 12 of them, like Amos, Obadiah, and Jonah. No one signed up to be a prophet. It wasn't something that you said in kindergarten that one day you would want to be a prophet of the Lord. Rather, the Lord came to you and he called you and he gave you a specific message or an action to do. But the prophets predominantly existed in a time of Israel when Israel was in, in decline or a time when Israel was often controlled by foreign powers. These weren't thriving and positive times to be a prophet of the Lord. So they often would have to point out how the Israelites had abandoned God. And then their messages were these unpopular ones because they would describe how their sin or the sin of the nation would, would create almost certain doom unless there's repentance or change in action. It would be like having a job as a consultant that your only job to do is go into failing organizations and telling them that they're going to be done in a year or so. It'd be like a job where you show up and that your only job is to tell people that they're all getting fired and you're there to kind of smooth it all out. That's your job. That was the prophet's job. The prophet's job was saying, listen, everything seems good, but let me tell you about a reality that's coming. I see something. I, God's called me and I see a reality that's in the future. That's where the word prophecy comes from. So their messages were unpopular and they weren't ones that everyone was signing up to do. It was something that God called and they felt the divine mission to do it. So that's what the prophet is, but what's this particular Jonah's prophet? What's his assignment? Chapter, verse 2. Go. Go where? Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Speak against its wickedness because its wickedness, it's, oh, Jonah, it's come up before me. I'm aware of it. 
In verse 2 of Jonah, we had the first plot twist. And for many of us listening to this today, it's just, well, okay, he's supposed to go to Nineveh. What's the big deal? But for the ancient readers, in the original context of those that were reading this, this would be a surprising twist. Because they would be used to prophets receiving divine words from the Lord. They would be used to getting direction but in challenging times and even having challenging messages. But these prophets, even they would sometimes speak against neighboring nations. That wasn't foreign, but this is the first prophet that was called to leave the security and safety of Israel and to go to a foreign city that's never been done before. God's never asked that of a prophet before. This would be completely um, a surprising twist in the narrative. To preach against it. To go to Nineveh. See, Nineveh in the text here is described as a great city, and it truly was. Probably this time in which it was written, Nineveh might have been the largest city in the world at that time. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, uh, which is one of the um, superpowers of the ancient world. And Assyria also had control of Israel at this time. But why is Jonah to go to the city, this Nineveh, and preach against it? Why? Well, the text tells you, because of its wickedness has come up before me. Everything we know about Assyria is that it was truly a wicked nation. That's the word that God uses to describe it. See, Assyria at this time had a reputation of being one of the most brutal and violent nations of the ancient world. They controlled much of the ancient world at that time, but their tactics they would use would be demonstrated on those that they ruled over. Israel, again, being one of them. They were known to cut off both legs of their victims or the ones they would capture and then cut off one arm, but they would always leave one arm so they could shake the hands of their victims. They would take the decapitated heads of family members and take, give them to their loved ones to hold on poles and to walk around just to mock them and to show their strength. They would, they would, they would peel skin off bodies. They would, they would be the first ones to stretch human bodies apart. They did all these harsh, horrific things to just to communicate their rule and their control. One commentator describes Assyria as a terrorist state. Do we see the irony? Jonah. See, what we know about Jonah is Jonah is son of Amittai, and we know from 2 Kings 14.25 that Jonah was a, um, was a prophet at the time of King Jeroboam II. So Jonah lived in the time of Israel where he prophesied. Actually, the verse says that Jonah prophesied that Jeroboam II was going to increase his, his boundaries, increase his prosperity, increase his land, which Jeroboam did. So Jonah was seen as this patriotic man supporting the military advancements of the king. He was seen as someone that prophesied and that prophecy came into fruition. He was heralded for that. And this is the man. This is the individual in which God calls to go to Nineveh. Do we see the irony? This Israel first patriotic prophet is called to go and preach the nation that has caused so much pain. See, Jonah, we know, lived on a border town. And we know that these border towns, they, were, they saw the worst of it. They were the first ones that embraced foreign powers coming in. 
So that means Jonah probably grew up experiencing the injustice, experiencing the destruction, experiencing the cruelty to maybe his family members or to relatives or to neighbors at the very hands of these Assyrians. He's seen the brutal tactics. This is not just simply an idea for him. This is experience. He grew up learning to hate these people. And now, now he's called to go there and preach Now he's called there to go and learn the language and go and preach and tell them about this reality coming. It would be similar for one of us to be called to go to North Korea and tell them that they're missing God and they need to change their ways. The chances of success for Noah or survival were most likely low. So that's the prophet. That's the assignment. What's his response? Verse 3. But Jonah... Jonah famously, he, he ran away. He ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship uh, bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Verse 3, the second plot twist. See, where assignments were given, all the prophets eventually would, sometimes they would be slow, but eventually would submit and oblige the call. But this was not the case for Jonah. At this point in the narrative, we don't actually know why Jonah flees. Maybe because of where it is, maybe because of the uniqueness, maybe because of the hatred he has in Nineveh. We don't know fully, but nevertheless, he flees. And I want to show you where he flees to. And so I found this map on the internet, so don't judge the poor quality of it. I think we have a map. This, yeah, it's even blurrier than I remember it. You get the idea. So see that big red arrow? That's, that's Israel, if you were unsure. That big body of water, that's the Mediterranean. You'll, you'll track soon. Anyways, so that's, that's where Joppa is. That's where he went and boarded his uh, little boat um, to get away. And so if the next, next slide it has where Nineveh is. Nineveh is roughly up there in modern-day Iraq, about 550 miles from where um, Jonah was. So that's where he was supposed to go. That's where God called him. But he went to this place called Tarshish. Do we have that where Tarshish is? Yeah, Tarshish is way over here. Which actually gets missed on the irony of this. Tarshish is about 2,500 miles away. In fact, Tarshish at this point was the furthest place that Israelites even knew existed. This was literally the end of the world. Spain was the end of the world for Israelites in 800 BC. Anyway, so this is a place called Tarshish. You see the irony here. And see, Tarshish, where Nineveh was known as this military city, Tarshish was known as this prosperous city. It was the Bora Bora of the ancient world. It's where you went and had lots of money and things. And the fact that he had money, enough money to pay for a fare, would also be uncommon. He put a lot of investment and time into this. He goes to this place, Tarshish, and it's what's interesting. He says, the text says, he flees from the Lord. Literally, it says, he flees from the Lord's presence. He thinks he can escape the Lord's presence by going to a place like Tarshish because it must be so far, so out of the way that God doesn't even know it exists. The prophet, the assignment, and the response of Jonah is that he flees. He doesn't want to take on this assignment. He goes to the furthest place that he knows possible. He gets in a boat and travels a long distance so he doesn't have to go to Nineveh. So that's the story. That kind of sets off the narrative for us and where we're going to be walking through. But what's the implication for us today? 
What does this ancient story of this prophet who had a bad assignment, who decided to run from it, what does it teach us today in our modern context? Well, simply this, it's a question. God's agenda or ours? God's agenda or ours? See, Jonah was actually very happy to be a prophet of Israel. He was very happy to be a prophet as long as the God of Israel's agenda aligned with his. When he got to stay home in the security of his nation and got to speak about how, hey, Jeroboam, your lands are going to, your borders are going to advance. We're going to experience prophets. We're going to experience, pro, um, uh, we're going to experience a more prosperous future. He was, he was quite content prophesizing about that. But when God asked him to leave his homeland, And go to the center of his enemy, the one he learned and he grew up to hate. Well, he couldn't comprehend it. He he couldn't understand why the God of Israel would be concerned, so concerned about a pagan, anti-God city like Nineveh. Fundamentally, Jonah did not trust God. See, the, Jonah, the story of Jonah is so relevant for you and I because for me, I am more like Jonah than I dare to admit. See, we all have moments like Jonah on a regular basis. We receive the diagnosis. We have that individual who sabotages our trust. We experience a financial setback. In those moments, in those moments that we don't can't comprehend or understand, we ask ourselves, how is this part of God's plan? Can God really be trusted? See, we, like Jonah, we have challenging and trusting in God's agenda. We think our agenda, our timeline, our plans, they are the better ones. In fact, this is as ancient as the beginning The very first temptation was one of trust. See, Satan in the form of a serpent, his original plan was not to tempt you or distract you, but to create enough suspicion in your thinking of you not to trust God. See, Satan shows up in the form of a serpent in the Garden of Eden, and he speaks to Eve, and he asks Eve this one question, did God really say? Or in other words, does God want the best for you, Eve? Isn't he holding back from you? Or to say it another way, can you really trust God? Is God's character good? See, all sin, all sin is a version of this question. It's the reality that you know better, that God's agenda, it can't fully be trusted. Speaker and writer Andy Stanley looking at asking the question is, how do you know if you're in a growing relationship with God? He's trying to understand, like, how do you know when people are growing in their relationship with God? He says, ultimately, you grow in faith. He says this, quote, faith, faith is what grows in a growing relationship, specifically a person's confidence in God or your trust in him. Confidence that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he has promised to do. He goes on, he says, God, God has been on a quest ever since, ever since the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. God has been on a quest ever since to rearrange with mankind in a relationship characterized by trust. The entire Old Testament story is God saying, trust me. 
Trust me. Is it no wonder then that when Jesus entered onto the pages of history, the central message of Jesus was to believe or to have faith or in other words, to trust me. The invitation always that been at the heart of Christianity is an invitation to trust God. But this, for you and I, is perhaps more challenging today than it ever has been before, and that's because we have a high confidence in ourselves. In 1950, the Gallup organization, they got a group of high school seniors, in a, uh, and they did this survey, and they, they asked them this one question, do you consider yourself to be an important person? Do you consider yourself to be an important person? 1950, 12% of high school seniors said yes. 2005, another group of high school seniors got in the room. You see where this is going. Do you consider yourself to be an important person? Guess what percentage? 80% said yes to that question. Of course, there's many factors that play into this, but psychologists have tracked how our language has shifted to a greater confidence in oneself. This self-centered confidence is prescribed to trust yourself, to be true to yourself. I think it's summed up beautifully in Ellen DeGeneres, her commencement speech in 2009. She says this, quote, My advice to you is to be true to yourself and everything else will be fine. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. So much of this change has been positive, and creating a confidence in the unique way God has made you is important. I spend lots of time working with people just around that subject. I think it's very essential. However, this greater confidence in yourself has resulted in this over-trust in yourself as well. This, this ability to see yourself and your opinions and your wisdom and your, your ideas of how things to be as supreme. Is it any wonder then? Is it any wonder we think we know better? Keller, in his great book on Jonah, he says it this way. When this happens, when the thing goes the way we didn't think it would go, when this happens, we have to decide, does God know what's best or do we? Does God know what's best or do we? He goes on, he says, and the default mode of the unaided human heart is to always decide that we do. We doubt that God is good or that he is committed to our happiness. And therefore, if we can't see any good reasons for something, for something God says or does, we assume that there aren't any. In um, 2020, uh, everything that shut down that was very true for churches. And so Amy and I had more time on our hands. And so we had more freedom to think and dream about what God was calling to us. In 2020, we decided it was time for us to transition, that God was calling us to something new. For one thing or another, we left our old um, church where we're at. Uh, just transition worked well with that point. And so we left before the next, the next stone was fully formed. But we were in conversations with a church, and it was looking good, uh, and we were thinking, this is where God's calling us. So we finished up one thing, and we started the, uh, the track and the interviews with the next place that we were going. Uh, someone who was organizing it, a district rep, he said, listen, you guys, you guys are my number one pick. I've told them that. You should go far in the stages. I've said you are the best candidates for this role. So we're feeling good about it. 
We're feeling excited about this. You see where this is going, right? I don't recommend um, giving up your job before you have your next one figured out. This is not an ideal path. Uh, anyways, we have one interview. Feels good. Had some questions. I thought we answered them really well. I'm like, they're going to love us. Who doesn't love the bakers? This is going to be great. So, you know, I'm off work, and so I got time. I'm just walking up the beach near a house in Victoria, and I'm, like, mapping it out and strategizing and all these things, thinking about it. And every day it's becoming more of a reality. I'm living more and more of this reality, living more and more of this reality, it's just becoming more and more of the thing that I'm living in. And then we get an email. And they're like, thanks for interviewing. We love meeting you guys. Uh, however, we think another candidate better fits our profile. That really threw me off. Because I also didn't have a job, and I kind of needed one. But it was also like, God, what are you doing? Like, we just felt like we were, like, connected with our senior pastor, and we got affirmation around the people. We were, like, we were discerning, and we were having all these moments, and we just felt like we were following the steps that the Lord had us, and all of a sudden, the door just shut. Things just change. And we're like, ah, this was not how we, this was not the, Lord, this was not the agenda we had. This is not what we agreed on. And of course, one thing led to another, and you know, if that door never shut, we would never have been here in this space and seen this beautiful community forum. But God's agenda is one that we constantly find ourselves needing to submit to. Now, this is a larger conversation of what it looks like to trust in his agenda. We did a whole series about a year ago around God's purpose and discovering that. You can find that on our teaching archives. But don't hear what I'm not saying as well. I'm not saying that this simply is a blind faith trusting in what God is calling us to and ignoring our intellect and our rationale. Augustine says it best. He says, God does not expect us to submit our faith to him without reason. But the very limits of our reason make faith a necessity. Meaning at some point, some things might not line up. Some things might not be the way that you expected them to be. And that moment, in those gaps, where are you going to put your trust? The whole story of Jonah begins with this idea, God's agenda or ours. Where is it that you trust? Do you trust that God is good and that he has your best in mind? What do you put your faith in? When you don't understand, who do you trust, God or yourself? I think one way for us that we do this as a community and we shape and form and a practice of us putting, constantly putting our trust back in God is around the Sunday gathering. See, this place here, this Sunday gathering, us, we come together, this is no small thing. We come into a space like this, and every Sunday we are affirming our trust and our commitment to who God is. See, just like you, I come into this space. Sometimes I come into this space full of disappointments, thinking life would look a different way or things didn't line up the way I thought it would be or not the same timeline. Sometimes I come into this place full of grief and disappointments and frustrations and confusions. Sometimes you come into this place and relational ch challenges and all these different re realities that are going on. Sometimes I come into this place and life is really good and everything's working out right and I have this 
I have this small voice in my head. It's because I've done all the right things, that I've established the right things, that I've worked really hard, that I've established and set this all up to look the way that it is. And so every time I come into this place is a moment for me to put my trust back in God's agenda, not my own. Regardless of what I'm feeling. So listen, in worship, when I raise my hands, that's not a response of what's happening. That's a, a posturing, a position of me saying, God, once again, I just trust you. I thought it was going to look different today. I thought I was going to be in a different place. I, I, this, is, this thing has been going on for way too long. God, I don't know what you're doing, but once again, I trust that you are best. That's why every Sunday we sing songs of who God's character is because we're reminding our souls who's good, reminding our souls who we can trust, reminding our souls and our hearts who's got our best in mind. Sunday worship is not just for me just to respond what's happening, but it's position my soul to receive and to put our trust back in God. Sometimes it's to re- I respond because you've heard Hannah's voice. She's amazing, right? So sometimes you have to respond to that, but... Other times, it's putting my trust, it's reorienting myself back to God's agenda. Where is the area of trust for you? What's your Nineveh? Now, for all of us in our room, our Nineveh looks different. But where is the area that we're finding ourselves going off to Tarshish, but God's called us to Nineveh? Where is the area of trust for you? Maybe today God is speaking to you about a a bitterness. Maybe there's this lack of forgiveness, this bitterness that just lives deep inside you, and the Lord has talked to you about it. You've heard sermons about it, and you think to yourself, well, God, you don't know this scenario. You don't know this person. You don't know this reality. I I think I know what's best here. Perhaps you heard the danger of finances and becoming your God and you know there's a greater level of trust in your money and being more generous, but you actually think you're the best manager of your finances. And you've heard things and you know things and these, you hear God like kind of whispering and talking to you about these things, but you're like, ah, God, I just, you don't understand the reality. I, I'm just going to trust myself with this and not what you say. Maybe there's a proclivity Maybe there's a sin, maybe there's a gap, maybe there's a thing that you're blatantly aware of and maybe no one else knows it but you and you've heard the Lord speak to you about it. You know the reality, you know what God's agenda says about it, but deep down, you're just not sure if you can trust him with that. You're just not sure if you can bring it out into the open. You're not sure if you can let the light shine in it. You're just not sure if you can trust God with that part of your See, the area of trust is different for all of us, but our growing relationship with God is this constant transition, this constant pivoting and giving God more of your life and say, God, I'm going to trust you with this. In these spaces, we ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us, and he always will. And he'll draw circles around things, and he'll say areas that, areas where you have trusted yourself more than you have trusted him. You will grow more and more as you trust him more and more. And may your life this year look of a greater level of trust in him than it has the year before. I'm inviting the keys to come back. I'm closing with this. The keys are already back. Wow, I didn't even, like I just said it, and the keys upon. Wow, that's amazing. 
Um, that's very good. I don't know how you did that, but that's talented. <laughs> centuries. Centuries later, another prophet like Jonah would come who would also receive a direction and assignment from God. However, his assignment would not just to simply go and speak to one city and rescue one city, but his job, his assignment would do to rescue the entire world. And unlike Jonah, this prophet, instead of running from it, he faces it head on and he trusts God even in the confusion and the uncertainty of it. See, Jesus, he's the better Jonah. He's not only as a model for us for what it looks like to trust God, but because of Jesus, we have every reason in the world to trust God and who he is and what he says. I don't know a better way for us to respond than in communion, which we will participate today. But today, if Jonah tells us anything, Jonah speaks to us about any reality, it's that you can trust Jesus once again. You can put your confidence in his agenda for your life. And maybe for you, it's for the first time. Maybe for you, the idea of Jesus is something you've heard of, you've been aware of, but you've never put your trust and faith in him. Your confidence has been in yourself, your own plans, your own agenda. Or maybe it's a recommitment. Maybe those things have faded over time and your trust has looked different, but again, once again, you can put your trust in him. I'm gonna invite you to stand this morning we're going to step into communion, but before we do, let me pray for you as you stand. Father, we just, we pause in this space. And Jesus, we just acknowledge your presence in this room. And Lord, we just don't take these Sunday gatherings of us come together, just part of the, just the routine Lord, may we just not take this for granted, but Lord, may we just see this as a space where once again, we position our hearts, we position our minds and our souls to trust you and your agenda for our lives. So Jesus, I just pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you draw circles around the places where we're lacking in trust in you? That we don't want to hand those things over to you because we just feel like we manage them better, we have better control, we just, we have a better plan. But may this room be full of people that are, Father, just transferring levels of trust to you today. Because Jesus, it is through your sacrifice and through your resurrection that give us great confidence to put our faith and trust in you today. Beautiful name. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in more resources, messages, or signing up for our current events, you can find everything on our website at forestychurch.ca.